0: Welcome to Boundaries of Expression, a podcast from Article 19, exploring the limits and challenges to freedom of expression. I'm Joe Glanville. Today we're talking about surveillance, and in particular the software that turns your mobile into a spy in your pocket, tracking your movements, listening to everything you do. There was an outcry last year after a data leak revealed 50,000 mobile phones were potential targets of the most infamous software Pegasus. In May, Spain's intelligence chief was sacked after revelations that politicians and activists in Catalonia were being spied on, as well as top politicians in the Spanish government, including the Prime Minister. This targeted surveillance is one of the greatest threats to freedom of expression in our time, wrecking the possibility of a private life and fatally undermining civil society. So, what's the solution? We're joined today by Ronald Debert, director of Citizen Lab in Canada, who's been at the forefront of exposing Pegasus. So, Ron, Pegasus has been at the center of attention over the past year, and that's the spyware developed by NSO Group in Israel. And I'd like to ask you first when did Citizen Lab first start investigating this type of surveillance? How far back does it go? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, for us, we've been uh, doing research on, let's call it targeted espionage or targeted surveillance against global civil society for many years now, well over 15 years. We did the first, actually the very first public report ever on cyber espionage back in 2009, uh, a major report called Tracking Ghost Net, which was about a China-based cyber espionage campaign targeting Tibetans journalists and many governments around the world and that really that report really put the issue of cyber espionage on the map because up until then most of the um, evidence was in the classified realms then very shortly afterwards around 2010 2011 we started recognizing that there was a commercial market for surveillance technologies and especially spyware technology that would enable government clients, whether they're law enforcement, intelligence services, to hack into devices. And this market was growing. It was largely unregulated. And we were starting to see bits and pieces of evidence of the services of some of these companies. So we started systematically tracking them. Uh, The first couple of reports that the Citizen Lab published back in 2011, 2012 on this topic were about companies other than NSO Group, uh, specifically a company called Hacking Team, which is based in Italy, no longer exists, and another company called Gamma Group, which made a spyware product called Finfisher or FinSpy. And then we first came across NSO Group in around 2015, and we were examining its infrastructure to the extent we could find bits and pieces of it that were uh, visible to our, our network mapping techniques. We had them on our radar, so to speak. And we got a real big breakthrough in 2016 in August when Ahmad Mansour, uh, who's a human rights defender based in the United Arab Emirates, received a couple of unsolicited text messages on his iPhone. Instead of clicking on them, he made the wise decision to forward them to us at the Citizen Lab. And one of our researchers, Bill Marzak, actually clicked on those messages in a controlled setting in the laboratory and infected one of our devices with Pegasus. We were actually able to capture the spyware. And we released a report at the end of August 2016 called the Million Dollar Dissident, which was the very first report on NSO Group.
0: So you were the first to identify how Pegasus operates?
1: That outside of the company itself and its clients, yes.
0: (laughs) And were you shocked by what you discovered?
1: I wouldn't say we were shocked necessarily because we have done a lot of research into this topic. We knew about the capabilities. Of course, the Snowden disclosures had come out in 2013, which was providing everyone with a little bit of window into the type of techniques that are available to sophisticated government clients. There was a lot of detail emerging from the trade shows. Uh, People had gone into these closed trade shows, uh, which are essentially exhibits for companies like NSO Group to pitch their products. And they actually have, you know, glossy brochures that they set up in these um, closed settings. Well, a few journalists managed to get themselves in and grab some of this material and share it with us. And and we certainly were aware based on these leaked brochures about what some of the capabilities were. Um, That first report, incidentally, uh, involved a version of Pegasus, which at that time was taking advantage of three separate software flaws in Apple's operating system that it didn't know about and so we did a responsible disclosure to Apple and they issued a security patch co timed with the publication of our report um so that was a little bit surprising that they were able to exploit flaws in an operating system of a company like Apple, which is well known for being uh, very good on security.
0: And what is it that makes Pegasus special?
1: Um, well, I would say a couple of things. One is that, you know, there are many different ways in which governments can undertake surveillance, targeted surveillance against victims or targets. And some of them are actually very primitive. So you can accomplish more or less the same ends if you can get inside somebody's email inbox. And you can do that by tricking them into giving you their credentials. So there's no technology involved here. It's nothing very sophisticated. But it can give you a a pretty extensive window into a person's activities if you can see all of their emails. But what Pegasus does is, is, and other spyware like it does, is on an order of magnitude uh, far greater, more powerful, more invasive. You know, of course, we rely now on these devices, these phones that we carry with us, around with us all times. You know, many of us sleep with them next to us in our beds. Um, We use them for just about every aspect of our lives. And they're actually designed to be invasive. So they carry within them applications that are constantly scouring the device itself, all of your interactions, all of the data, your images, your videos, etc., and your movements to get a picture of you as a person for principally for advertising purposes. So if a government client can get inside that device, they can gather all of that data. So in other words, they can turn on the microphone, turn on the camera, Follow a person around because of the the g p s that's a- activated on the device. you know turn that device into a spy in someone's pocket and get a picture of their entire life. so it is really you know remarkable capabilities, especially when you compare it next to how sophisticated that the actual implementation you know getting the spyware on a device has become so in the early days in the twenty tens twenty 2012 period. You needed to rely on some interaction with the target or physical access to the device. So, you know, if someone's crossing a border, you could take their phone, go behind a closed door, implant the spyware. But if you needed to do it remotely, you needed to trick them into doing something. Hence, the text messages that were sent to Ahmad Mansour, which, you know, were designed to try to prompt him to click on the link, which would then activate the spyware. Now, uh, the latest versions of Pegasus require no interaction on the part of the target, and there is no visible evidence of tampering. So, in other words, uh, a government client using the latest version of Pegasus can take over virtually any device without any interaction with the target. Uh, One of the journalists that we discovered had his phone hacked with Pegasus, Ben Hubbard with the New York Times. Describe this as being robbed by a ghost, which I think is a good way of describing it.
0: That's a brilliant and sinister description, and I'm thinking I'm remembering that Ahmed Mansour, who'd been targeted by other surveillance, as, as Citizen Lab reported,
1: That's
0: right. he 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 spotted it and forwarded it to you, and now there is no way. That anyone can know if they're being spied on?
1: Virtually no way. I mean, there there is some indication that maybe there will be performance issues with your phone, but that could be the there could be multiple reasons for that. So it's not a definitive answer. Um, of course, you have circumstantial evidence. Geez, I was you know communicating something privately and then it showed up on social media. How did that happen? But yeah, you're you're right. There's no kind of obvious lure that you could guard yourself against, which is very scary to contemplate when you think about the Mm. government clients that have access to this technology. Many of them are illiberal, authoritarian, dictators in charge and so on, and are using it uh, largely without any control.
0: But as as you've exposed as well, democracies are at it too.
1: Democracies uh, are very much not only into this, what we're describing, But also very lucrative clients for NSO Group, and they very much desire those type of of government clients because it helps them not only make money but legitimize what they're doing. They're especially interested in local law enforcement. So it's important to remember when we think about government clients, you might think, okay, how many governments are there in the world? But that would grossly underestimate the real potential number of of clients because within each government there are usually several potential clients uh you have the secret services the intelligence agencies but then you have local law enforcement so here in canada for example every province has a uh police agency and there's a national rcmp and then there are, are intelligence agencies. So a single country can have numerous government clients. And usually the, the lower ones are the least accountable, from my experience. So if you look at the United States, for example, if, if Pegasus were to get in the hands of local law enforcement in the United States, which the company very much desires, but they're prohibited from doing so now because they're on a blacklist. Um, that would make them a ton of money and there would be horrific widespread abuses because of the problems of accountability around local law enforcement.
0: And what does this mean for civil society? What's the impact on civil society, do you think?
1: Well, we did a study. It's interesting you asked that question. We did a study... Uh, precisely trying to address that question, looking specifically at the psychological and emotional impacts of being targeted in this manner, uh, focusing uh, specifically on immigrants, refugees and others who have come to Canada. Uh, and the reason we started this study is because we did a uh, an investigation into the hacking of a Saudi activist who's now a Canadian permanent resident and was a close friend of Jamal Khashoggi. His name is Omar Abdulaziz. And we discovered his phone was hacked with Pegasus. And our publication uh, came out the day before Khashoggi was murdered. And the realization that Omar made once the report came out, that uh, all of his communications with Jamal were being monitored because his phone was hacked, it, it traumatized him. You know, he felt guilty mm-hmm. Which you know you think he shouldn't, but it's understandable um so we're seeing this type of so psychological and emotional harm, a real chilling effect cast over civil society. People are afraid to use the device in their hands, they are um concerned about friends and family members back home, wherever that may be who are who are targeted it is it is really uh you know sowing fear and paranoia, um, which is interesting to contrast to the way in which we used to think about digital technology and civil society, maybe 15 years ago, or even as, as recently as 10 years ago with the Arab Spring, everyone was enthusiastic, uh, thinking about the creative ways we could use social media and our, our phones uh, to mobilize, to hold bad actors to account. Well, now the tables have turned because of this technology and what we are seeing instead we we, sh- we showed this empirically in our report based on the interviews that we did is instead people are scared and fear is is sometimes the most important weapon even if you don't hack somebody's device but you're able to to cast a shadow of fear over civil society you can really slow things down and 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 confuse and disorient your adversaries which may be one of the principal aims of doing this sort of digital repression.
0: Yes, I mean, I think you're right. I think just just as has been observed before, just the existence of surveillance is enough to act as censorship,
1: isn't it? That's right, that's right.
0: So, I mean, really activists, lawyers, journalists, human rights defenders, and all of us who care about our privacy are going to have to become extremely sophisticated and have sort of greater technical knowledge, really. Although even then, I'm not really sure what you do.
1: This is the... the Joe, you've hit the really challenging part of the the problem here is that when you're dealing with, let's call it nuclear scale spyware technology of the sort that I just described, it's it's so uh, orders of magnitude more sophisticated now. What is an individual to do there? There's really, you know, there is low hanging fruit. I don't want to say it's hopeless there. There are things all of us can do to build a routine into our daily habits, increase our digital hygiene. We actually have a guide that, that we produce that we now turned over to consumer reports called Security Planner that I would recommend to everyone to take a look at and use. It gives you little digital security tips. But the reality is when you're going against adversaries that have this level of capability, it's very hard to defend yourself against and, and that means that we need to have solutions at a different level. So we can't expect individuals to solve the problem. Uh, we need to look for a, a, a solutions that are systematic and structural and at a higher level. And that, that ultimately means government regulation. In many ways, I think it's analogous to the problem of climate change. So, you know, when, when thinking about the climate crisis... All of us say to ourselves, you know, what could we do differently? How can I change my daily habits? But ultimately, individuals taking these steps is not going to solve the overall problem, which is global in nature and requires fundamental restructuring. And I think it's the same with this this problem.
0: Let's have a look at Pegasus and, and how they justify what they do. They claim that their spyware is used exclusively by government intelligence and law enforcement agencies to fight crime and terror. They say that they apply rigorous ethical standards. How do we square that justification with the evidence?
1: Well, you can't. It's a short <laughs> answer. They're they're obfuscating and and trying to deceive people, in my opinion, in order to continue making revenue and fend off uh, the obvious. Evidence that's you know irrefutable now, uh, mountains of evidence that their spyware is abused. The the problem here is it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to quickly zero in on the logical problem. So they say we only sell to government clients. That's true. To investigate serious matters of crime and terrorism. Well, that this is where the problem begins. There are many governments around the world. One would hope that would undertake investigations of what they would consider to be crime and terrorism. And we might reasonably agree that those are justified. But everything depends on the definition of those terms. So who is a criminal or a terrorist in Saudi Arabia? It's Jamal Khashoggi, a journalist. It's Lujain Al-Hatul, a a woman's rights activist who is advocating to uh, allow women to drive a car in Saudi Arabia. As a consequence of her activism, her phone was hacked numerous times by Saudi Arabia using Pegasus. She was detained, arrested, and brutally tortured over many years. That's a terrorist in the eyes of Saudi Arabia. So the argument very quickly falls apart because of this problem of what constitutes crime or terrorism. And they've been using that to legitimize repeated business sales to some of the world's worst sociopaths. I have no other way to say it. How, how would you describe otherwise Paul Kagame of Rwanda, who sends out death squads to target opposition figures and then also uses Pegasus? Well, for, for Paul Kagame, any person who's an opposition figure that flees the country is a criminal. And he's welcome to use that technology to track their movements and ultimately you know, undertake targeted assassinations. So th- th- this is a, a, the real problem with that argument. It, it makes no sense. Anyone who spends five minutes studying the, the area can see through it. Um, and again, this is why we should, we should not even listen to NSO Group. Uh, as we spoke before this podcast, as, uh, as we were preparing to record it, and, uh, a person from NSO Group is appearing before the European Parliament, dusting off these usual excuses and the members of parliament are not taking it. They're, they're smart enough to realize, well, this makes no sense.
0: So where does the responsibility lie if we start trying to look at what can be done? Is it with the software developers, with, with the governments, with the investors, with the creditors? Mm-hmm. Where, where does it lie?
1: I think all of those and more is how I would answer it, that, you know, there's no one single solution to this problem. I think first we have to acknowledge this is going to be a super difficult problem to fix. Why? Because every government is invested in this area and it's making a lot of people a lot of money. That combination is pretty potent. It'll be very difficult even in a country like Canada or the United Kingdom to get buy in from the intelligence agencies who contract with companies maybe not nso group itself but companies like them they would really prefer to keep things behind closed doors that's how they operate Uh, they have various layers of secrecy they they generally speaking do not like to have outside accountability at the best of times so you're dealing with a very difficult sector to regulate even in the most healthy liberal democratic countries Uh, when you add into the picture the growing number of non-democratic authoritarian countries the challenges get even steeper then you have the problem of how lucrative this industry is and how the companies that manufacture this type of technology are able to exploit tricks of the financial trade in order to obfuscate their ownership create shell companies and various investment structures that are specifically designed to evade accountability. The same type of techniques that are used by money launderers and kleptocrats worldwide. That makes it very difficult to even begin an investigation to find out who is responsible for particular sales or contracts or whatever. For example, NSO Group, when it sells to a government client, it almost always sets up one or more intermediary companies that are based inside the country of concern in order to facilitate the sales. Why do they do this? To Mostly to evade accountability, in my opinion. So we, we need to start thinking about this holistically and recognize, first of all, that it's not going to be easy. In, in my opinion, what needs to happen is everything that you mentioned. Uh, so we need the big companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, etc., To be more proactive, these companies uh, have a lot of visibility into what's going on within their networks, involving their customers who are targeted. We've seen some of them take some pretty dramatic steps in the last few years. Uh, WhatsApp notified a number of victims of Pegasus. Apple did the same. Both of those companies have sued NSO Group. Those are all very encouraging developments. If we could get more of that from the tech sector, that would be great. We've also seen some governments take some dramatic steps. So, as I mentioned, the European Parliament has begun a special investigation into Pegasus because of revelations of spying in some European countries. We need more of those type of special investigations. The United States has has taken some regulatory steps that have had a pretty big impact on at least a couple of the companies. They've put NSO Group, Kandiru, and several other hack for hire firms on their designated entity list, which means they can't do business with U.S. companies and vice versa. That's a big blow to the bottom line of NSO Group and to its shareholders. But, you know, again here, we have to recognize that NSO Group is not the only game in town. Uh, they, they will almost, I expect any day they will fold. They, they will become insolvent because of their financial problems but the personnel will just go to another company they will rebrand under a different corporate edifice and continue to do business in another guise and they're only one company among uh, you know many many dozens of these type of companies worldwide
0: do you see international human rights bodies being able to come up with an effective answer to
1: Yes, they have a very important role to play in terms of setting, setting the normative terrain, uh, making sure to um, put the issue on the agenda uh, of policymakers, uh, to not let it disappear, to point out the contradictions, as we've been speaking about, um, to emphasize the importance of transparency and public accountability. Of course, many of them lack the type of you know, the specific means to do something tangible, but many others actually have that power. So the European Parliament can go a long way to creating rules that governments would be obliged to follow if this investigation actually unearths clear evidence of abuse. Um, that, that's pretty meaningful. So I think that that's an important layer uh, to keep in mind.
0: And how worried are you about this recent story that a U.S. defense company is in talks to buy NSO Group?
1: We're very worried about that. Actually, myself and my colleagues and the people in this space uh, recall earlier we were talking about the issue of or the prospect of companies like NSO Group selling to local law enforcement. I think that's the play here uh, that NSO wants to get a U.S. buyer, and the the argument that's being made here by both the prospective purchaser and NSO Group's backers, is that this will bring them under U.S. control. And what it will do will will show that the Biden administration is not actually as serious as they seemed in terms of taking this this problem to task. And they will be able to do business with U.S. customers, which opens up uh, this extraordinarily lucrative marketplace that is also prone to abuse. So we think this is a a, a carefully curated strategy to get around or to nullify the Commerce Department designated entity list and create a kind of umbrella around NSO Group and its technology, which would actually enhance its sales. So we hope that it, it won't happen. Fortunately, the White House has made very clear signals that they disapprove of this sale on national security grounds. And I hope that that continues.
0: And why do you think it's taken so long for there to be such an outcry about this spyware, given that you, as you outlined at the beginning, have been exposing this for a while now? Is it because it's not just about abuse of human rights, but governments see that it's an issue of national security?
1: I think that's a, it's a good really good question. It's a combination of things. You know, the, the very first report I talked about in 2016 was on the front page of the New York Times, so we can't complain about the coverage that we've received. Virtually every one of our reports gets widespread publicity, as do those of our partners at Amnesty International. I, I think a couple of things have really helped amplify the issue. One is the Pegasus Project. Which was organized by Forbidden Stories and Amnesty International and others, consortium of journalists. In that case, they acquired what appeared to be uh, 50,000 telephone numbers that were used to do reconnaissance on potential targets prior to NSO exploits being fired at those devices. And within that list were a number of very prominent politicians, including Emmanuel Macron. And that was quickly followed by several other cases demonstrating that Pegasus is also used for international espionage. That's one of the kind of dirty open secrets of the surveillance industry is that even though they say their technology is used strictly to to help governments investigate crime and terrorism, we know it's abused to target civil society, but it's also used by states to spy on each other. And so we've had a couple of these incidents come up where, in our work and in others' work, where heads of state, very senior foreign policy officials, diplomats, have had their phones hacked with Pegasus. And I think that really kind of rattled people within governments. And of course, you have competing interests. So there's an ongoing debate right now about how to deal with this problem because they're both worried about it and dependent on it at the same time. So I'm hopeful that, you know, there will continue to be a mature discussion about the the real risks of this technology to both human rights and to national security.
0: And my last question, if there's one thing in an ideal world that, that you could make happen to change this situation, what would that be?
1: Yeah, that's a really tough question because I think (laughs) there's not one solution to this problem. I'll tell you something that I think we need more of. You know, the Citizen Lab has been doing this work for many years. We're really excited to see Amnesty International mount their security lab. And they do very similar reports to us. If we had 15 more organizations like that around the world doing the type of very careful evidence-based research, that Amnesty International Security Lab does and Citizen Lab does, I think we'd be able to hold governments and companies more accountable. So, you know, if there was one thing, I guess I'm saying this in a, in a slightly biased manner as a researcher, I would like to see more, especially university-based research groups, doing the type of work that we do.
0: So, Ron, thank you for a really fascinating discussion. And I, I think you've put out um, a very interesting suggestion to funders possibly who might be listening to help to create more organisations like Citizen Lab. Thank you very much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to Boundaries of Expression from Article 19, produced and presented by Joe Glanville, recorded and mixed at Bison Studios in London. If you'd like to find out more about Article 19's work defending freedom of expression, please visit article19.org.